one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 439 for the week of Monday, December 10th, 2012. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Good evening, sir. How's it going? Doing all right, thanks. Just dealing with a couple of tech issues here with my mic, so bear with me through the show. And welcome as well, Mark Raverman. Hello, and let's go. Exactly. Let's not waste any time. And let's get right into our stories. And the first story that we're going to talk about is somewhat related to Curiosity. Curiosity's been on the surface of Mars for a couple of months now, and they're already planning another one. That's right. NASA has unveiled plans for a new Mars mission to launch in 2020. And what they will be doing to save time is they will be trying to pretty much make it based off of the design of the successful Mars Science Laboratory or Curiosity rover. Doing so, it'll save them money, and the ultimate goal of this one, though, is to try and find hints of possible organic molecules. It's pretty interesting, huh? I just think it's kind of interesting. We, we told uh, uh, the European Space Agency earlier this year that we were not going to join up with ExoMars because we couldn't find the money to go ahead and do it. Uh, you know, I, I think we were going to go ahead and contribute... Uh, contribute the booster, we were going to contribute some of the experiments and, and so on, and we basically told ESA to, no, we can't afford it this time around. So here we are, we're taking essentially spare parts, I guess, from, from Curiosity's mission, and we are going to be sending those to Mars in 2020, and I believe the cost for this mission, if I'm not mistaken, is uh, in the neighborhood of about $1.5 billion. Exactly, $1.5 billion, where Curiosity's original cost was two point five. Yeah, well, you figure, too, you've all already done the R&D um, for Curiosity here. Uh, and in this case, too, you're, you're basically you know using spare parts from, from the first effort. But all the research is basically done. You know, all the heavy lifting is basically done. So uh, you're going to slash the cost in, in half. But... I still find it kind of curious um, that you know we, we're we're going to go ahead and we're going to do this. Um, there's a, a another mission that we have a pl- planned for 2016, which is essentially a, uh, a sort of redress of uh, Mars Phoenix. But I'm I'm sitting here and I'm kind of wondering, you know, we we basically kind of reneged on one agreement to go off and do this. So I'm kind of wondering where this thing actually came from <laughs> and where all the money came from to go ahead and do this. Yeah, program manager John Grunsfeld basically told reporters that, you know, we've got a lot of budget issues and, quote, we're still in a continuing resolution for fiscal year 13. There are questions of sequestration, which, note, we've talked about on the podcast before. The administration is still considering our input to the fiscal year 2014 budget process. But basically, they're saying that 2020 is kind of ambitious, but they may be able to push for 2018, but it may be 2020, it may be 2022, but they're going to get it eventually. <laughs> it's, yeah, but uh, again, I'm, I'm still kind of wondering, you know, I, I know budget constraints and so on, and oh boy, especially in, in today's. Um, uh, budget conscious, uh, you know, reality here. Uh, it, it's just kind of funny that all of a sudden we found the money to do this, and we haven't figured out what we're going to do. You know, but we still backed out on a on an earlier agreement. I know we're going to still support ExoMars in a, you know, for communications and things like that. But 
I'm still kind of wondering why we left Issa kind of dangling. It's just it's it's just odd to me. I don't know. I mean, we do have our own now. Technically, we've got our own lander as well, landing in a couple of years, and that they actually gave it an official name, Insight, standing for Interior Exploration Using Seismic Investigations, Geodesy, and Heat Transport. Rolls right off the tongue, right? Right. That was the one I was alluding to in 2016. Exactly. Um, that one will cost no more than $425 million excluding launch vehicle. Right. Uh, which is again. cheap, which is probably cheaper than ExoMars, but in my opinion, less rewarding scientifically. Yeah, well, the idea, too, is I think they, they got that going just to get something out there for the 2016 window. I mean, that, that vehicle is essentially going to be uh, built out of spare parts from uh, the, the Mars Phoenix operation. So, and I think it was just to get something out there for that 2016 window and to do some sort of science. But uh, it, it's just odd that we've, we've gone ahead and, and, and we've decided to, to leave our a partner hanging. Uh, but I'm, I'm not going to poo-poo it all that much. I'm, I'm really, really happy that we've got our own rover and a possible follow-up to, uh, to Curiosity. But um, I, I just kind of wish that we were still able to go ahead and, and follow through with agreements that we had made and then you know, said, eh, maybe not, and we pulled the rug out. So I don't know. Well, we'll see, and obviously we'll keep an eye on all of the missions that are scheduled to go to Mars. Is There's just a couple scheduled in terms of all of the countries. We have one launching in 2013, and that's MAVEN, which is an orbiter. We've got one from ESA, which is a communications gear for their mission in 2016, and components for an astrobiology mission for ExoMars in 2018. The InSight mission is scheduled for 2016, and the new rover, as we just mentioned, is scheduled for 2020. So lots of Mars missions in the next decade. All right, so continuing along then, we talked about all of these things that are launching. And obviously launch vehicles are pretty important, especially when they work. Right, Gene? And when they don't. In this case, uh, we had a little bit of an event happen today, actually. Um, the I'm looking at an article from uh, NBC News uh, t- from today, uh, December 9th, as we record this. Apparently, the Breeze M upper stage of Russia's Proton Heavy Lift booster has uh, gone ahead and thrown us another curveball. This is the third time that uh, this particular upper stage has, well, failed. Um, it was supposed to go ahead and put a communications satellite into, uh, into orbit, and unfortunately it has put it in the wrong orbit. It's put it into a much lower or- orbit than, uh, than, reco- than it uh, was supposed to be. So again, this is the third time this thing has failed, and we're trying to find out you know, exactly what's going on. It places this particular booster in some doubt. Or this, or this particular upper stage, in some doubt. Now, I also know too, according to this article here, that it, that, that it's also scheduled to launch a Mexican communication satellite into orbit, and uh, I don't know if they're going to go ahead and, and do that or not. Um, what was supposed to happen was that this this rocket was supposed to place a communication satellite into an orbit with an apogee, according to the article, of about thirty five hundred kilometers and a perigee of about uh, uh, 7,470 kilometers and an orbit of about 9 degrees inclination relative to the equator. Now, according to the article, the Breeze M booster failure released the satellite into a perigee of about 3,100 kilometers with an inclination of about 26 degrees, according to the current, current, uh, current data. Now, the satellite manufacturer thinks that they can go ahead and uh, use the onboard thrusters of the satellite to put it into some sort of orbit where they might be able to get some use out of it. But um, again, it's it's a lifetime issue because of because the satellite's in the wrong orbit and so on. And we don't know how much how much useful lifetime you're going to be able to get out of this thing. But um, I don't know. This is again the third time that this particular upper stage has failed, and uh, it is a black eye for uh, Roscosmos for sure. These are guys that, that basically have, have had this, the, the satellite launching business by the throat for, for a very long time. 
And um, this might be inroads for the fledgling business that's opening up here. This might kind of open up doors for, I don't know, Falcon 9 or for uh, for Delta or for, for Atlas V or any other other the boosters here or maybe it might even give our, you know the, the the Europeans a chance um, to uh, to get some business but uh, I don't know uh, it it, it kind of makes you wonder though about what's going on over there in 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 Russia right now with uh, with this particular uh, booster now again now this hasn't affected any of the manned flights at all but you know again it kind of leaves you wondering and if I'm a a satellite manufacturer trying to get something up there, you know, this is going to keep me scratching my head and saying, "Okay, who do I trust to put my to successfully put my vehicle in orbit?" So here we are. You mentioned, you know, maybe an opportunity for others, but don't forget what happened on the last Falcon Nine launch, where they had the Orbcom set, which was also put into the wrong orbit because of the engine failure. So right, it's not really the market at the moment for satellites. It seems like you know, in terms of reliability, but I don't know. Yeah, but it, I, I'm I'm hoping that they'll they'll go ahead, they'll sit back, they'll do a, a you know a failure analysis and really figure out just what the heck happened with this thing, because you know this is like you know third you know th- you know three strikes and you're out on this one. So you have to wonder, you know, what's going on over there, and and what kind of reliability are, are they going to have going forward, and does this really you know I don't want to open up this can of worms. But does this port over to the to the piloted side of the house? That's something we're just gonna have to keep an eye on. I think. Indeed. I mean, obviously, this is a big reputation, you know, negative reputation for them. But we'll keep an eye. All righty then, Mark. So I have a feeling you have a really interesting story that'll brighten up our day, don't you, Mark? Yeah. Let me uh, let me see what I can do with explaining this to where it will enlighten all of us. Suppose you're an astronaut. The ISS, you've either got some viewports or windows that bring in whatever light or darkness there is every 90 minutes that changes through the cycle of sunrise to sunset. Well, that would throw your circadian rhythm off. Or you've got artificial light. Well, what NASA is working on, together with Boeing, and by the way, credit for this story goes to Scientific American, but what they're working on is replacing the existing fixtures, some 85 fixtures, with a new type of fixture that's going to have LEDs. Now, I know that all sounds great and fine, but back to the astronauts, sleep deprivation. You wouldn't want your astronauts to be a little behind the power curve when they really needed to be fully alert. Believe it or not, one of the serious problems that astronauts have is getting a good night's sleep. Now, NASA's flight surgeon medical officer, Smith Johnston, said that they even allow eight and a half hours a day for shut-eye, but the astronauts barely average six hours. They get 30 to 60 minutes less sleep than they get on Earth. Why? Well, you've got that thing that sounds so delightful to us floating in bed. Well, it's unnatural. We're not used to that. There's constant noise. There's air, air circulation systems. There's all of the uh, systems, the machines, all of the apparatus of that wonderful orbiting laboratory. So you've got constant noise, you've got variable temperature. You ever notice how you don't sleep necessarily quite so good if it's a little too hot or a little too cool? Uh, You may not have the best air circulation depending on where you are on the station. You may have some back aches because now your body is adapting to microgravity and you don't have that force of gravity that keeps everything, you know, kind of working the way you're used to. But it says nagging backaches and headaches. Shifts between time zones of Houston and Moscow where they have to, uh, at certain times, they have to do a sleep shift and be ready to work on, a, on another schedule depending on who the key player is on a particular role in a mission that they've got. Well, back to the LEDs. So the LEDs are going to be uh, new fixtures that are going to go up. Boeing is working on these. They'll deliver the first 20 lamps in 2015. They expect that will happen about the time that the ISS is down to their last spare bulbs for the fixtures in place. So they'll be delivering 20 of them in 2015. 
And what's different about these LEDs, and they're going to be, and of course, here you know, it's got to fit where the other fixture is. They can't go changing things. To make it simple and workable without a whole lot of crew time and engineering resources, it's got to go in the place that the existing fixture was. So that's part of the design. Each of these LED fixtures is actually more than 100 LED bulbs uh, covered with a diffuser so that they appear to be a single panel of white light. Now what I think is really interesting is that they've, they're doing a study as we speak to determine what colors and what hues of light are best suited to helping the astronauts to, let's say, be awake and alert. Let's suppose they had an emergency or something unexpected where they had to be, you know, 100% ready and, and engaged with both, uh, you know, their own procedures and also with coordinating with uh, ground control. Or suppose you want to help the astronauts get that sleep that they have such a, a challenge sometimes in getting. So what these fixtures are going to have to start with is a white light for general vision, makes sense, a cooler blue shifted light, which will, they expect, promote alertness, useful in the morning during some of these uh, critical times when they may be awakened out of, out of schedule. And they're going to have a warmer red shifted light that they expect will trigger a little bit of sleepiness, which would be nice when you're about ready to literally turn out the lights. So I think this is kind of interesting. One of the things that I never really expected to read about, but when you consider all of the complexities of getting your rest and the fact that they're sleeping inside a big, big machine, maybe this will help, and hopefully it certainly will. Now, what's this costing? Well, according to Scientific American, they say that NASA is investing $11.4 million to change out these lights. And... Uh, I think it's a good investment. Hey, Mark, I was, I was just thinking, I, I'm, I'm wondering already, are we possibly looking at a potential spinoff here? I'm thinking, you know, Earth applications, like, for instance, sleep shift, shift disorder and, and uh, other, other things that, that kind of would affect uh, sleep here would possibly maybe a spinoff of this be coming into, you know, the market for, for medical purposes here. Sure, quite likely. In fact, I didn't mention it, but a couple of the collaborators that are looking at the uh, the science of sleep is uh, individuals from Harvard University, from Jefferson Thomas Jefferson University, and also from the Harvard Medical School Division of Sleep Medicine. And they say that they will expect this technology to be widespread back here on Earth. I think it may well be uh, something that we'll look back on and say, ah, I remember when we were changing from incandescent light bulbs to fluorescent. And the young people someday in the future will go, incandescent, what's that? And say, <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's like a traffic light. Well, no, those old traffic lights, they were LEDs. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, there will be, uh, be some things that will benefit all of us. And, of course, the advantages with, with LED is lower power consumption. It's a, uh, a less... Uh, complex material to dispose of when you do dispose of the, um, the let's say the bulb, the lamp itself, and uh, got a lot of potential. Grand story, Mark. Thanks. This, again, this is, this is a good example of, of, uh, of uh, space technology out there trying to help our, our ISS crew, but also in the same, same token, there's some you know, applications back here on Earth that could, uh, that could help a lot of people. All right, so... Let's reawaken because we've made one trip around the table. And let's begin our second trip around the table. And I guess it comes back to myself. So let's start things off with some more launching. But it's not necessarily launches. It's more of a launch site. Now, as you most likely know, most of the Russian launches occur from the Baikonur Cosmodrome, which is located in Kazakhstan, once a part of the Soviet Union. They've been launching there since the 60s. According to a report today from the Russian news agency RIA Novosti, there are apparently negotiations to try and turn over the launch site from Russian control to Kazakh control. Now, Russia has been essentially leasing the land 
from Kazakhstan since the Soviet Union broke apart in the 1990s. After all this time, they want it back. The current lease that they have now says that Russia can use the site till 2050. So they have a good 40 years left on it. But they want it under local control. What do you think of this? Oh, boy. Well, it, it, it doesn't give me the warm fuzzies because, you know, I know this is, this is sort of a, you know, an inter-country battle here. But um, keep in mind, gang, this is the only facility we have right now that is launching piloted, you know, piloted spacecraft to the International Space Station. Now, and and it will be at least until you know if if CCI cap keeps on schedule at least until about 2017 so you don't want this area in any kind of chaos whatsoever you want it you know pretty much um, you want it you want it pretty much intact and this kind of throws a monkey wrench into who's going to be overseeing this facility that is actually the only spaceport currently that is able to go ahead and launch you know a piloted spacecraft to the international space station so i'm i'm kind of wondering what the implications are um in the, all of this for for uh, getting soyuz uh off the ground and um i don't know if it's going to be a big deal or not going forward um, it might turn out to be. Now, I know the Russians are building their own their own spaceport right now, but it just isn't going to be ready soon, anytime soon. So, do you have a have a do, do they have a, a date on that one? I don't know to be honest about a new spaceport, but they are planning on building a new launch site at Baikonur called Baitarek, which, from checking the article on Ria Novosti, it does not state exactly. Because yeah, I'm I'm looking actually I'm looking at a an article here um, being reported by the uh, uh, by Interfax Kazakhstan here. Uh, the Renault you know, basically uh, saying that Vladimir Putin basically coming up and saying that the rental agreement on Baik- Baikonur adopted in 1994 has run its course, and we've and we've we've basically got to go ahead and and either negotiate a new rental agreement or just keep on going as is um right the new location which you were discussing by the way um i i my apologies on terribly massacring this but (laughs) let me give this a try the plessics cosmodrome in the arkengilsh region uh oh wow boy did i probably butcher that my apologies (laughs) (laughs) that's where they're planning to conduct the launches from and eventually complete construction of the vostochny space center in the far east according to that article so eventually they will move out of there, but in the meantime, they had the 2004 agreement to build Baitarek, and they're still launching there for now. But just so you know, the current agreement that they have has Russia paying an annual fee of approximately $115 million U.S. million to use it and a $50 million maintenance fee annually. According to the article here, the first, um, uh, the first launch facility that could fall under uh, Kazakhstan control would be the one for one for uh, the uh, the Zenit boot the Zenit vehicles. I'm sorry, um, and they're used to carry uh, you know, just just satellites into orbit. But uh, that could fall under under Kazakhstan control uh, quite quickly. Um, so again, what implications does this, this have for the International Space Station? I don't know. Uh, it'll be interesting to watch and see how this all you know you know, all shapes up, but until that other facility in Russia gets um, gets its act together, uh, I think Russia's basically at the Kazakhstan's uh, at Kazakhstan's uh, mercy at this point, and sadly, I think so is the rest of the international partners. Well, obviously, we'll be keeping an eye on this, because just to note, the Baikonur Cosmodrome is the busiest launch complex in the world. So this is this may have some huge implications, and we'll certainly keep an eye on it. Speaking of keeping an eye on things, this is one that's difficult to keep an eye on because it's mostly classified. But, Gene, can you declassify some information for us? I could sure try. Uh, it looks like the X-37B, which is uh, essentially the U.S. Air Force's uh, space plane, or should I say DARPA's, actually, uh, space plane, plane um, looks like it's going to be launched anytime between... Um, <laughs> anytime between uh, 10.45 a.m., 
and ten and I'm sorry, five fifteen p.m. tomorrow, Tuesday. Um, this has been delayed for a little bit, but uh, it looks like that the that the uh, the vehicle that they've uh, that they're using um, is is ready to go, and uh, we will have to see how how this all works. But the but the idea is, what the heck is this thing actually doing, and what is this thing? Um, the X thirty seven B is uh is is essentially a a mini shuttle it is unpiloted it has a wingspan of about uh oh uh fourteen uh fourteen feet nine inches according to what i'm looking at here from boeing um its length is about twenty seven feet six inches so it's not that it's not all that uh uh it's not all it's not all that uh large but um it, this is also a vehicle that was once uh, part of the NASA portfolio. Uh, it was moved ob- over to the uh, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, back in uh, 2004 in the fall. Uh, and nobody really knows what it's doing up there. That's just it. And uh, a lot of an- analysts are saying, what is the Air Force doing with this thing? Um, nobody knows. And uh, the only thing that... Uh, some sort of speculated, and I'm looking at an article here um, written by Todd Halverson over at Florida Today. Um, basically, uh, he's quoting John Pike, who is a, uh, a, an, a defense analyst. And his, his thoughts on this is just, just to bamboozle the Chinese. That's why this thing exists, just to keep them scratching their heads, trying to figure out what the heck they're doing with this thing. Um, to give you an idea, um, sorry if I'm not mistaken, the last flight that this thing had, um, it was up there for quite some time. No? Exactly. It was up there for at least twice as long as it was supposed to. If I remember correctly, it was at least a year, if not more. Right. And this thing's got the ability to land on its own. Basically, you can land, land autonomously. And I'm looking at a, a, an article uh, by CNET here, which cites that the last, uh, last time that the, uh, the X-37B was uh, on orbit, it spent 469 days in space. And nobody really, again, nobody really knows what it was doing up there. It, it's gotten a lot of attention from a lot of uh, you know, folks here on the ground trying to track it, trying to figure out what it's doing. But uh, everybody's trying to figure out what, it, what its purpose really is. Uh, nobody really knows. So everybody's kind of sort of scratching their heads. And this thing could just stay up there you know, for quite some time. So it it'll be interesting to uh to see what uh what what the Air Force has got planned for this thing. But uh again nobody knows. Uh I guess we're not really supposed to know. And I think maybe maybe uh John Pike's right. Maybe it's its whole existence is to just basically keep us guessing and also keep our adversaries guessing. So who knows? And just to note that the current scheduled flight is vehicle OTV-1, even though they're calling it Flight OTV-3, and that was the vehicle which carried out the first of the flights to date, which lasted 224 days, ending in December of 2010. Alrighty then, so let's continue along to our beacon of hope. Mark, do you have another story for us? Yeah, something we don't have to guess about has its roots in history. In fact, uh, I'll give you a double dose of history real quickly here. But first... But first, I would like to thank James Sharkey, also known on Twitter as Mad Science Skill, who sent a tweet to us a few weeks back and said that I reminded him about this when uh, he saw this and it reminded me of something I'd talked about earlier, and that was some lighted navigation beacons that used to be part of what made aviation happen back at the turn of the century, uh, post-turn of the century, actually. And these lighted beacons, think of them as lighthouses. They formed the airways that the early airmail and and other uh, cross-country flights used to navigate from point to point. At one point, I I couldn't tell you the numbers. I've forgotten the details, but there were literally several thousand of them or more in the country. Well, there's one in particular at Mount Diablo. Now, Mount Diablo is a mountain in the Contra Costa County, California, San Francisco Bay Area, and this mountain is a state park, and it also is the home of the Mount Diablo Beacon. 
This was originally known as the Standard Diablo Beacon because it was put up by Standard Oil Company and somewhere in the early 1920s, I believe. Well, let's do some more history. Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. We actually just passed the anniversary of that, and that's significant because on the anniversary of Pearl Harbor, one day a year, this beacon in its present uh, location in a nice-looking little beacon tower that they've built, this beacon is lit to memorialize Pearl Harbor Day. On that single evening each year that it's lit, it uh, memorializes that. It begins at sunset, and public's invited to attend. And I hear the sunsets from the top of Mount Diablo are quite, uh, quite the sight. But this might be something. If you want a really uh, different kind of a trip sometime in the future, like let's say December 7th of 2013, this might be an interesting one to plan for. And again, thanks James Sharkey for bringing this to my attention. I think it's pretty cool that uh, these old airway beacons are still, and think of it, they're nothing, nothing less than the GPS of that era. There is an organization called SaveMountDiablo.org, and uh, what they're trying to do is to get funds to main, both maintain this beacon and also to preserve parts of the state park. They have hopes of having the restoration completed for the 2013 Pearl Harbor beacon lighting for that anniversary. And with the efforts of volunteers, there's still a lot of cost involved. But check it out if it interests you. And... Uh, Thanks to the veterans. And in fact, I worked at one point with a man who was at Pearl Harbor in the Navy on that day in 1941. And thank all who served. Yes, indeed. And the link to that, which Mark mentioned, will be in the show notes. And thank you again for letting us know about that by Twitter. You can get in contact with us with any stories or interesting things that you might have by Twitter at Talking Space. Of course, you can always email them to us. Our email address is mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com, or you can post it on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash talkingspace. And thank you very much again for sending us the tweet, and Mark, thank you for giving us that story. All right, now we are on to our final trip around the table, and this trip is more of a fantasy trip, so bear with us as we fantasize a little bit. What do I mean by that? Well... You'll find out as we get into our first story, and this is about a petition. Now, some of you might know that you can create a petition with the White House to have them take a look at a specific issue. That's happened before with Penny for NASA, and now they have one that I think is even more critical. To quote from the exact petition, quote, We petition the Obama administration to secure resources and funding and begin construction of a Death Star by 2016. No, I am not joking. Here is their description. By focusing our defense resources into a space superiority platform and weapon systems such as a Death Star, the government can spur job creation in the fields of construction, engineering, space exploration, and more, and strengthen our national defense. Think this will ever happen? I just had one of those, you know, stylus across the LP moments when you said that, Sawyer. (laughs) You know, um... My first reaction is I think somebody's been smoking the ganja a little bit too much. Um, I mean, okay, fine. We we had our our um, we had our our petition here. You know, I know um, John Zeller, bless him, tried to go ahead and and get some an active petition going to at least try to get a penny for every dollar that is submitted. Uh, for taxes uh, to go to, uh, to NASA's efforts for space exploration, uh, which I thought was a noble effort. Um, a Death Star. Okay. Um, what would be the... Pur- my, my question is, what's, what's the purpose? As it Other- says, defense resources. Yeah. <laughs> okay. S- sure. Um, yep. All right. I mean, there, there's one gentleman... And 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 I'm I'm going to bring this up. Um, that has an interesting site, you know, to to talk about fantasy here. Uh, there there's a site called 
www.buildtheenterprise.org, yes. where where a gentleman is basically proposing that we build something that looks like a Constitution class starship, and he proposes that this could probably be done in what in uh, almost a um, a ten year ten year period, but it would have to be a you know a focused effort and so on. Um, and he proposes that his ship could probably get us to Mars, and um, I forget what what the what the the time frame is, but it, it could get us get us there in a, in a short span of time. But um, I mean, it, how do you take something like that seriously? And I'm wondering too: is that going to cripple any type of other um, serious, you know, space related? effort going forward you know the, the i mean the white house is going to look at this and go please <laughs> you know yeah pretty much but this is basically just to raise awareness to the u.s government of things that the citizens feel is important and this is the scariest part in my opinion of the twenty-five thousand signatures needed by december 14th 2012 as of this recording at ten fifty p.m on the 10th of december 2012 they currently have exactly 15,838 signatures. Somebody's really been hitting the Christmas eggnog a little too hard. <laughs> I think it's more than one person. I think it's about 15,800 people. Yeah, exactly. Um, you, won't, you won't see me signing that, that's for sure. I'm and tempted, but I probably will not as well. No, I mean, nobody's going to take that seriously, Sawyer. I mean that. The only way I would sign it? is if they don't have a self-destruct, you know, function in any way where you can, you know, fly through it and then blow it up. Yeah, but my, <laughs> I, I'm still trying to figure out the, the, the why. That is a great question. It apparently it will support jobs and, yeah, no idea. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, isn't that what we're trying to do with our own space program right now? Trying to go ahead and support jobs and trying to support... Um, that, that's one of the offshoots, anyway, of it to try to try to spur on high technology uh, jobs and and uh, and research. And uh, I don't see how you know building something that George Lucas invented in his brain is going to go ahead and do anything. I mean, please. Speaking of NASA-style petition on this same website, there is a petition to increase the budget of NASA. And uh, I would consider, you know, just for the fun of it, this other petition, but not until I see the increase the budget of NASA petition be successful. And unfortunately, it's only got 4,438 votes as we speak, and less time to hit the uh, goal of 25,000. So I think that might be the one to sign first, and... After it's through the process and makes the goal, maybe look at some other ones for fun. Hey, Mark, is that, that did, can you pass along the URL for that one? And when does that one close, Mark, just out of curiosity? It's closing on January 4th, 2013. Okay, that's one I need to sign. Yes, we can post a link to the one that Mark mentioned in the show notes. And if you really are interested in signing the one to create the Death Star, Google it. We are not going to post the link to that one. <laughs> Alrighty then. Well, that's a fantasy that may never become truth. But the next one is a fantasy that people are planning to become truth. Right, Gene? Well, it's it was the announcement of a of a new business um, venture that uh, that happened uh, last week. Oddly enough, the same week that we celebrated the uh, the fortieth anniversary of the Apollo seventeen lunar mission, it was the final lunar mission that uh, that the United States embarked on. Um, uh, at least the final piloted lunar mission, and it was also the final piloted lunar mission that anybody embarked on and uh, it, it, this, this company sort of developed from that basically saying it's time to step out again um, the company is called Golden Spike and it uh, gets its name from the ceremonial uh, 
final gold spike that was driven to join the uh, Central Pacific and Union Pacific Railroads, oddly enough, on May 10th, 1869. Uh, we all know what happened a little, you know, about a month uh, later, 100 year, years from that point, in July of, uh, or two months later, in July of uh, 1969. But um, uh, what the purpose of this one is, is to go ahead and have a, a company that would act as a clearinghouse, if you will, to get you to the lunar surface. Uh, so if you are, for instance, a country of some sort or a private entity that wants to go to the moon, uh, it could go ahead and finance for you a, or help you put together a, uh, a lunar mission for two individuals. What's the cost of all this, you say? I hope you, you know, pocket change, about $1.4 or $1.5 billion. Uh, or at least that's what they're saying that the ticket would be. Uh, how are they going to do it? Well, uh, the gentleman who is running this um, is a gentleman by the name of Alan Stern. Um, he is also, he's, he's former NASA, um, but he, and he's also a... Uh, the leader of a, another space startup called Uwingu, which is um, trying to go ahead and, and funnel money into research and education projects for, for, space, for space flight. Um, but this is kind of different. It's trying to go ahead and take you know, funds um, to, to go ahead and get two individuals to the moon. How are they going to do it? Well, again, they, they want to take this stable of vehicles that are already out there um, or it's still in development. Uh, nobody has, the, you know, the, I believe SpaceX was mentioned, but Alan Stern is being very, very vague as far as what companies they would be contacting and so on. But the thing is, right now, I guess they're waiting to see what happens with the Google X Prize, uh, the Lunar X Prize, because right now we don't have a lander that's capable of landing anybody on the moon. The only one that I know of that we actually have is sitting in the Smithsonian, and that's Lunar module number two. Um, so I'm not too sure what they're going to use for a lander, uh, and how are they going to end up end up funding this? Uh, they are are trying to go ahead um, and make advanced sales and make it advanced sales to to nations that want to go ahead and get to the moon. Um, they're hoping to get enough advanced sales to attract people, you know, the top companies like Boeing, Lockheed Martin, and so on, and saying, yeah, okay, fine, we may have a clientele here. Let's see what we can do to help them out. Um, the, my, my question, though, is can, we, can they really pull something like this off? Now, before you, you, you go kind of crazy here, there, there are some big names involved in this thing. Um, uh, former flight director uh, Jerry Griffin's on board with this. On the board of advisors is Wayne Hale. Um, I think uh, former uh, Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich is in that woodpile in there somewhere. Um, so they've got a lot of heavy hitters, you know, at least on the board of advisors and 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 uh, the board of directors. But I'm not sure they're going to be able to pull this this off. Um, I, I'm a lot of people I talk to on Twitter um, basically think this is going to end up being a vaporware company. Um, I, I'm you know the jury's still out. Is this going to work? I don't know. I mean, I think of other past lunar ventures. Uh, there was a company called Lunacorp that I think uh, a gentleman by the name of David Gump started back in the '90s that supposedly was going to go ahead and return us to the moon and so on. Um, I believe the the business model on that one was uh, initially starting out with uh, uh, robots that could be controlled by individuals here on Earth, and um, you know, it, again, there was there's been a lot of fits and starts to get um, companies started that would get us to the moon or back to the moon. I'm I'm still trying to figure out if this is actually feasible or not. And right now I'm on the fence. I'm 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 from Missouri here. They're going to have to show me this. This is actually going to work. I should add, even though I introduced this as a fantasy, I understand that this is a real plan. And obviously, I'm hoping for success in this plan because I mean, the sooner we can get people back to the moon, the better. 
but I'm, as you can probably tell, I'm a little skeptical. Of course, I don't mean in any way this is fantasy, and I'm hoping that they succeed, but I have my doubts. Is this really doable? Uh, the, the article cites using, um, you know, United Launch Alliance's Atlas V or, or the Falcon 9 and SpaceX's stable or, you know, or just going forward or even, um, even Falcon Heavy. But is this really workable? Um, and what's the demand? You know, are other nations going to want to do this? Uh, especially, you know, people. You know, people are cash strapped right now. We can we can hardly find the money to run our own programs, let alone farm it out to somebody else. So I don't know. I'm I'm on the fence. But is this workable? Who knows? But uh, time will tell. And I'll be watching. Uh, uh, Mr. Stern and and the whole the whole project. I'll be keeping my fingers crossed, but I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm a huge fan of Uingo. I really am. I'm glad that that was set up because that is going to go ahead and give funding to educational resources and to to you know universities and so on that are trying to set space based experiments and get those going. And that's the that's what we need to for for seed money for that. But is this going to work? I don't know. I'm 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 cautiously optimistic with this one. Exactly. And I have to agree with you on Uingo. It's it's a it's a great idea. And obviously we hope for the best of success for this program. And in the interest of full disclosure, I'm I've already contributed to the Uingo uh project, so um I uh, that's how that's how much of a believer I am and in it. But this one I'm, again, extraordinarily cautiously optimistic. All right. Now for the final fantasy story. This one is more of a fun fantasy story. And last week, Mark did a couple of book reviews. And I believe you have one final one for us this week, don't you, Mark? Yep. Back to space. But only if you're small. In this case, let's talk about Meteor. Meteor is a hardworking, friendly mouse who has all the qualities that a space mouse should have. And I'm reading from the inside cover of Mousetronaut by astronaut Mark Kelly. That was illustrated by C.F. Payne. And if you haven't seen it or heard about it, you need to check it out. And I don't mean check it out from the library. You need to go to your local bookstore, get a copy of it, buy two copies of it. The reason I say buy two is buy one to give to either an adult or a child that you care about and want to see a smile on their face and keep one copy for yourself. Because anytime you need a little pick-me-up, if you read about Meteor, which, let me continue, Meteor is very small, teeny-weeny, itsy-bitsy. And so wherever, whenever mice are needed to go up in space, the bigger mice are chosen, Meteor's left behind. But he does have his day. Now, Mousetronaut, as you look inside the cover here, it says it's based on a parentheses partially true story. And it's a charming story. The illustrations are great. You look at them and you can kind of visualize, I don't mean kind of, you can visualize the interior of the shuttle and you get a chuckle out of the illustrations with the, the, the crew of mice that are being trained. But again, this has its basis in fact. And uh, if you go to the back of the book, there's a section written by Mark Kelly, which the whole book is written by him nonetheless. But anyway, there's a section that he added that talks about what the inspiration for this story was. And Mark Kelly, I kid you not, is, is, is one man that I haven't found a reason not to look up to him. You know, many of the astronauts are just such incredible people. They're, they're great role models. They have a desire to inspire, to do special things for both the young people and the adults, and yet they're regular folks that several times when I've had the opportunity to to meet them and talk to them at KSC or to ask them questions at press conferences, you know, you have their attention, they're giving you their very best. Well, Mark Kelly... Uh, just for background, if you're not familiar with him, he's a, he was a captain in the United States Navy. He commanded the final mission of the Space Shuttle Endeavor in May 2011. 
He was a veteran of four space flights to the International Space Station, and he's a graduate of the United States Merchant Marine Academy. He's one cool dude. Buy this book. Buy two. I know you'll enjoy it. Hey, Mark, you said the, the story was loosely based on an actual story. I would <laughs> love to hear the backstory on this. I'm, I'm, I really mean that. Um, the, backstory, uh, you know, the backstory involves mice in space. Hmm. Interesting. Hundred percent true. I'm not making it up. I'm not adding to it. It does involve mice and a mission that Mark Kelly was on. Okay, now I know darn well what I'm getting my niece <laughs> for Christmas this year. Oh, or at least one of the things. Th oh yeah. This is this is such a happy thing. I mean, I can't listen to you just responding to what I'm saying without smiling because I know how good it is and and I take it you haven't seen it and uh, I'm hoping that other people that are listening to us that haven't seen it will be tempted tempted badly to go get it I'm lucky enough to have a signed copy and it is absolutely amazing so I, I agree go out to your local bookstore support them and support this awesome book and get a couple copies Alrighty then. So on that note, I think we are ready to squeak on out of here as this brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here. Thank you for joining us, G. McCulka. Thank you, sir. Fun night. And uh, I, I definitely, I think, Mark, you just solved one of my, uh, my Christmas dilemmas, so thanks. And thank you, of course, for joining us, Mark Ratterman. My pleasure. And believe it or not, even though here we are working our way into the just about the middle of December, got some more good things coming up the rest of this year so stick with us if you're enjoying the holidays don't take the holiday off from talking space we'll be around exactly we'll be pushing out episodes till the end of the year so we're gonna end our fourth season of talking space with a couple of great episodes so we hope you'll stay tuned till then but in the meantime thank you for listening and as always have a great day night evening or whatever it may be where you are Thank you.